Uh, it is good to be here worshiping with you. Uh, my wife and I and our children have worshiped with you before, about two or three years ago, and so it is good to be here, and I'm um, thankful that Pastor Tim has given me the invitation to come and to be with you and to go, join with you in this journey as you're going through talking about this whole importance of valuing, valuing people. And so today, um, as I'm here, and uh, he's given me the opportunity to talk about valuing uh, race and ethnicity. And so as I think about values, I realize that when it comes to values, that this whole issue of value and determining what it is, it varies from people group, and it varies based on assumptions and presuppositions from the environment. Um, and yet, what is interesting is this, as we talk about the kingdom of God, because I, I just believe that the kingdom of God is very prominent when we go and we read through the Bible, that in the kingdom of God, that values are not determined by a majority as in the case of a democracy. But in the kingdom of God, the values are determined by the king. And the king is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And because Jesus is the king, he will never be outvoted. He will never be undermined. He will, there will never be a coup that, that will ever overtake him because the king reigns forever. And we sing that oftentimes, that, that he reigns forever. And so as this king and as this one who is there, we, it, there it will pose a tension, a tension for, uh, for us many times because of this. Because when you are in the kingdom of God, there is a tension between being a citizen of the kingdom and a citizen of society. And when we are children of God and, king, and kingdom people, the tension is this, is that we should always value that, first of all, we are a citizen of heaven and then a citizen of America. A citizen of the kingdom and then a citizen of America. And oftentimes that gets inverted and yet, what is important is that if we're going to talk about valuing uh, other people and valuing ethnicity and race, I think that it's, first of all, we understand this, that we take our cue from the kingdom. And so, first, so we understand this, that God values this whole idea that we value what he values. And so one of the core values of the kingdom is this, and that is being uncomfortable, being uncomfortable. Now, I know that doesn't necessarily uh, sound necessarily uh, right or regular, but the truth is this, is that being uncomfortable is, an, is a non-negotiable in the kingdom of God. So in, in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus says, and he says to us today, he says, then he said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. This is not a statement of being comfortable. It is a statement of being uncomfortable. It is a statement of tension and the idea that God has placed us here and that we live in tension oftentimes because we understand this, that, that we are often told that because we live in this great country that we should expect to be comfortable. And so when we're comfortable, we expect that people are going to think the way that we think, speak the way that we speak, talk the way that we talk, vote the way that we vote, sing the way that we sing, whether it's how we worship and who we worship with. We like the idea of being comfortable. And yet in the kingdom of God, we understand this, that the kingdom of God is not about being comfortable because the truth is this, is that Jesus came and he engaged an uncomfortable world with an uncomfortable mission of saving humanity. And by him willing to become uncomfortable, he helped us understand that just as he came into the world to become uncomfortable and to save us, we are supposed to be engaged in a life whereby we will be uncomfortable. 
And so there was a phrase that we used when we planted a multi-ethnic church down in Sanford, Florida, and it was this phrase, get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Uh, I know that it's probably comfortable as you come, but, but by being African-American within our church body, uh, the Lutheran Church Missouri Center, is 97% Caucasian. And, and so when we move about, and I, I move about, it's all, you, the reality is that oftentimes I go to predominantly white uh, congregations. But let me say this. If you went down south, and if you went down to Alabama, which is where I was born, and if you went over to New Orleans and you went to North Carolina, you would discover that you are ne- not necessarily in the majority in those places. And the question would be is how comfortable would you be in that situation? I've had, often had times friends who called me who were pastors across the country, and they talked about how people knew that we were Lutheran, and as they came to the churches, um, and they got a chance to meet the greeters prior to a service, and the, you know, the, the greeters found out they were Lutheran. But as they looked around and they saw people filling in, uh, filling into the church, the, it says the pastor looked up and he said, I looked up and they were gone. And these were, these were, these were uh, Caucasian people who were visiting predominantly African-American churches. And so I realized that oftentimes we have, a, we have an issue, with the, even within our church body, of being uncomfortable. And yet Jesus said that we are supposed to understand that we're going to live our life in tension. So notice what he says in John 17, verse 16. Jesus prayed this incredible prayer. He prayed it on the night when he was going to face one of his greatest tensions. He prayed it in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so he prays here in John 17, verse 16. Jesus prayed, they are not of this world, even as I am not of this world. He was praying for his disciples, who he had handpicked. And he was praying for us who will one day become disciples who will follow him. And he wanted them, and he wanted us to understand that there will be tension in our life. And so followers of Jesus Christ understand that although we live on this terrestrial plane, that this is the place where we were born, we go to school, we work, we get married, we have children, we live in a particular place, we uh, even retire. He says, don't ever get this twisted, as I might say. He says, don't ever get this twisted, because although we live in this world, we are not of this world. This world is not our home. And it's a dangerous thing when we get comfortable and think that this world is not our home. And so it's so important that we understand that we value, we we understand that we are supposed to value what God values. Next, we value everyone when we value the common language, the common language. You know what the common language is in the kingdom? Here it is. It's not English. It's not English. So we talk about this common language. This is an incredible language um, that we understand because when we talk about this language, it is a timeless, it is a timeless, inclusive, um, multi-generational that stretches across time, and it is a language that is able to heal the nations. And that language is called peace, peace. So Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 3, let me just do this. I, I know I shift. I want to just uh, shift, and there's a correction in your bulletin. It should be actually be Ephesians chapter 2. And so in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, For he himself is our peace. Let me share this with you. Peace is a person and an experience. Jesus is a person, not a construct, 
not something that is simply considered in our cognitive understanding, but he is an experience. He's a person. In Isaiah chapter 30, it says it this way, that he will keep you in perfect peace. He is the God. He is the Son of God. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords that is able to come into our very frustrating, very trying life and give us a peace which surpasses all understanding. And so he is an experience and he is a person. And so it's important to understand this because language is more than words. Language is more than words. Language is about the, uh, about the sounds and the signs and the symbols and the meanings that we give those things. Language is about those surface, uh, surface and, and substantive nonverbal cues that we get. And so I want us to look at this real quickly at a video as to talk about language this morning. And if we, we could just watch it, it's going to be about Harambe. Uh, about a year ago, there was an incident. So I want us to look at this real quickly. So in the kingdom, as we talk about language, language, as we said, are more than just the words. They are the signs, the symbols, the agreed-upon understandings that people, that people have. And so as we read this and we heard about what, was, what happened is that here was a young boy, and, I, and we should say this, that we look at it and his family, that, they, that this young boy was a, was, a, was a child of color. And as when he fell down, we heard that there was an outcry. And there was an outcry because they thought that he should not have been killed. And then you look at the face, the posts on Facebook, because really, when you really want to know what people think, you go and you read Facebook. <laughs> and Facebook really tells you where people are coming from because Facebook reveals the heart of people. And so on those Facebook feeds, there are all these people who are upset that they killed this gorilla. And as you look at it, as you listen to the deeper message, the deeper message was this, is that we care more for the, for the life of the gorilla than seeing the possibility of a child dying. Because that's what it really meant. That's what it really meant. 
outraged because a silverback gorilla was, was killed. But the truth is this, is that the zookeepers understood the language of the gorilla and not the armchair, armchair people that are watching it from day to day. They understood that as they looked at him that the child was in, a, was in a place of a serious threat and they did the necessary thing in order to keep this child alive. And so we have peace as a common language because it is needed to dismantle words and messages and behavior and language that seeks to condescend or be judgmental or divisive and toxic. And we need to make sure that we're not borrowing the language of our culture and inserting it into the language of the kingdom of God. So I'll give an example. So in, the, in, in, in our society, we like to talk about tolerance and that, that we should make sure that, that, we, that, we are, that we are a society of tolerance. There's a problem with that because here's a problem. Because in the Bible and in God's language, tolerance is not a word in the vocabulary. It's called love. It's called agape which is unconditional. Go throughout all the scripture and you will never find throughout, especially through the, through the New Testament, that you see the word tolerance. But tolerance is a word that we have established and used in society and we've incorporated and brought into our scriptural and biblical language, but it's not meant to be there. The word that is supposed to be there is love. Can you say love? And so love is what helps then to be another part of the language that is needed in our life and be part of our vocabulary. As we also talk about understanding how we move toward valuing other people, I think that it's important that it's important to understand that God values identity. God values identity. Identity is so critical to who an individual is and how he or she interfaces with the world because we understand this, that before Jesus began his public ministry, before he started preaching one thing, the father, his father, presented him to the world with this statement. After he was baptized, he said, Behold my son, in whom I am well pleased. He was letting people know, this is who he is. This is my son, and his identity is that he is my son, and I am well pleased with him. And he needed to say that because he understood that for three years in Jesus' ministry, that as he ran into church folks, amen, Pharisees, Sadducees, our church folks, that they would spend most of their life trying to demean and undermine his identity. And so he made sure, he said, I want you to know that I'm well pleased with my son. In society, we have issues. Look at the person next to you and say, we got issues. We got issues with identity. Because we determine people's identity and their value based on how much money they make, how much money is in the bank, what house they live in, what car they drive, who they know, how they make us feel, and even the, the, the color of their skin. We got issues. And as a result of these issues, we understand this, that, that it's something that we have to always recognize and that we are in tension of. And so I understand this, that, um, that, that I have, a, a, in a way, a trifecta identity, at least a trifecta identity. I understand, I know this, that I am, that I am, a, I am a follower of Christ, I am African-American and that I am Lutheran. <laughs> the challenge is this, is that oftentimes, especially when I go to churches, that when I come in through the door, no one knows that I am a follower of Christ. People don't know that I am a Lutheran, but what they do know is that I'm African-American. 
When I go to the grocery store, when I go stand in the line at the CVS, it's interesting as I just stand by and listen as I watch, and I hear the greetings that people give to other people of people who are Caucasian, and they get the, hello, good morning, how are you doing? And I listen, there are two or three people ahead of me. And then by the time I get up there, chirp, chirp, <laughs> chirp, chirp. And so I walk, and I've done it enough times. I walk to the door, and I walk just slow enough so I can hear, and then the person that, behind me gets this great, incredible greeting which is just amazing. And so the idea of, of understanding that, that this goes on, and so I think that it's so important that when you look and talk about the identity, Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 gives us an understanding of the importance of identity. And so notice in Genesis 2, verse 7, it says, The Lord God formed the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. I like that. Because there are two major ingredients that are here. First of all, the first ingredient is this, is common stuff, common stuff. So God shaped man from just dust. And you understand this? This is the unifying factor against, across all of humanity that we are all from dust and as a result of dust that we should all be seen as equal in the eyes of God regardless of our ethnicity, our ability, our geography, um, even regards to uh, our race or our religion, that we are all supposed to be seen equal in the eyes of God. We got, we got, we're, we're from common stuff, from common stuff. Look at the person next, next to you and say, you look common. <laughs> yeah, I'm one of those preachers. See, if you came to my church, that's exactly what we're doing, amen? This is common stuff. The second ingredient is God stuff. So he says, and he shaped him, he shaped him and formed him. And then it says, and he breathed into him, breathed into him, and he became a living being. What did he put in him? He put in him his Holy Spirit. And every human being that has been born since then has the breath of God in them. So you got some God stuff in you. You know that it's, and not just in you, but, but in everyone that's ever born, they got God stuff in them. Psalms chapter 8 says it this way. He says that, that I made you a little lower than the angels. In Psalm 139, David says, I thank you that I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. So everyone that you see, regardless of where they're from and, and where they live, they, we understand this. They are a little lower than the angels. And guess what? That they are fearfully and wonderfully made. We got God stuff. And yet, Society will oftentimes try to diminish our identity and who we are in Christ. I remember one of the hardest times that I had was when I went to seminary. It's on video, isn't it? Okay. So, uh, <laughs> so I went to seminary and gone through, and as I said, you know, there were uh, at, of a probably enrollment of probably maybe 100, 120. There were probably only three African Americans in the whole school. Um, by my fourth year, I was in my last class. I went to this, I was getting ready. We were going to get ready to receive our call to become a pastor in a church. And I remember that I was standing there talking with another gentleman, and one professor walked by. He looked me dead in the eye. He said, yeah, I'm a racist. And I looked at the person who was standing next to him. I said, did he, did he just say he was a racist? He said, yeah, I'm a racist. And looked at me, steely-eyed, as he walked down the steps. And I just had a hard time with that. Amen. Because it kind of threatened, in a sense, my identity. Not that I didn't know who I was, but because it threatened me in a higher institution, quote-unquote, of people who are supposed to be Christians. 
And so then he saw me the next day, long story short. I didn't have a whole lot to say to him. He looked at me. He saw that I was pretty much irritated. And um, he began to go on, and I just looked at him, and he said, what do you think about this? I said, you need to just stop while you are ahead, as he was giving a presentation. So anyway, after the class left and everything else, he came and talked to me, and he said, you don't really think that's what I meant. I said, well, you told me what was in your heart. I don't even have a relationship with you. Why would you come and share that with me if you didn't mean it? And so as a result, you know, he said, well, I didn't mean it, and um, can you just forgive me? I said, yeah, I forgive you. (laughs) And then he asked me the the most difficult thing. He said, well, can we shake on it? It was a hard thing to shake that man's hand. I shook his hand. But then that Wednesday, I remember it it was Holy Communion, and that Wednesday I told myself I cannot go to Holy Communion because I have a difficult time right now. It's difficult for me to go to receive the body and blood of Jesus knowing that this man in some way is not only a threat to me but to anybody else even though he says he really didn't mean it. And yet I continually think about that I got God stuff in me, amen? And that people have God stuff in them and it's that this God stuff and this common stuff is coming together and that he has positioned us in order that we might know that we have value in the eyes of God. And then also in the kingdom of God, and I'll share this, and that God values diversity. God values diversity. So in uh, Ephesians 2, verse 14, Paul writes, Who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Could we just be honest? We're supposed to be honest with church, amen? I'm just saying, okay that the biggest wall in our society, in our country, is the wall of ethnicity, if we just be honest. If we just looked at what we see that takes place on the radio and what we hear, that the dividing wall is not a wall that's trying to be built down in, our, in, in the southern part of our states. It is the wall of ethnicity. And so people like to think that Oftentimes, that if, if people would just act like us and dress like us and talk like us and vote with the like us, it would, everything would just be great. But God has a different take on diversity. He has a different take on what that means. He has a different take on unity. So in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, uh, 3, he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. That's a deep and profound statement, and this is how profound it is. It is to say this, that if we, if we are at odds with diversity, we are really at odds with God. And the reason why I say that is because when we talk about God, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is diverse, amen? But unity does not mean uniformity. Those of us who are in the military, we know what uniformity is, Amen? You walk the same way, you turn the same way, we salute the same way. We, all, we even told what the uniform of the day will be, amen? But in the kingdom of God, unity does not necessarily mean uniformity. And so we understand that uniformity says that, that nothing really changes. And yet here it is that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the amazing thing about the Trinity is this, is that the Trinity is not at odds with each other. There's no conflict in heaven among the Trinity. There's always agreement. And from this agreement, we understand that God is healthy. And so as we talk about this diverse God, 
that is the essence and the character of who he is. And this diverse God began to create a diverse world. And so we start reading uh, uh, in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, day 1 through 6 is about this diverse God creating a diverse world. Are you with me? So the first day he creates the light. Second day he creates the sky. Third day he then goes on, he creates the land. And, 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 and so we understand this, and he goes on and starts creating all of these things that are out there. And so he says he, he created the world in high definition so that you can see all of the differences and all of the distinctions. And so sometimes I've been around people and say, people say, people say, I don't see color, but you do. And that you should see color because God created color. Amen. And when God created color, it was nothing that was wrong because we tend to think that that when things are different, that something's wrong. But at the end of each day, God said, and it was good. So diversity is good. And yet what happens is that through the course of our experience and the course of our values, we begin to then determine what is good and what is right and what is acceptable. And yet we need to ask ourselves, are we really, are we seeking to celebrate diversity or are we controlling diversity as we look at what is going on in our country today? Jesus went to war to remove the barrier of sin and the barrier of, of, of Satan and the barrier of the grave by being able to launch the most expensive war that this world has ever seen. It cost more for the war that he did. It cost more than World War I, World War II, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, uh, uh, Desert Storm, and Operation Iraqi Freedom, and the Afghanistan War, because you know why? Because he shed his blood. And the blood of Jesus is worth more than all the money accumulated across all the banks for all times. Because how do you play? How do you pay for your salvation? And we know we don't. It was the blood that was shed. And that blood that was shed was there, was there in order to remove the, the wall between us and God and the wall between uh, uh, us as a people of God. And so he bore our sin on his skin. And our skin was not meant to divide us. Jesus is in the truth business. John 8, verse 32, he says, And you will know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. So God wants to set us free and wants us to understand that we are all at the same level at the cross that we all need his grace and all we need is forgiveness and that we all fall short of the, of, the, of the glory of God and that we need him. And because of that, there is no one better than the other because we all understand that there is sin in our life. And so he understood us and wanted us to understand that truth is so important. So before I close, I just want to share with you some truth. You may know it already, but I just want to just share with you this truth. The truth is this, is that Christianity is not a Western European religion that went east. Christianity is a Middle Eastern religion that went west. Stay with me. So when you go through and you start looking at Christianity, the roots of Christianity are both African and Middle Eastern. 
And so then when you go and you read about Abraham, Abraham, we are told, Abraham slept with his wife's, his wife's uh, maid, who was Hagar. Hagar was, was an Egyptian, and from that, 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 that coming together that they produced a child, and that child's name was Ishmael, and God said, that's not the child that's going to be the, the promise, but he's still going to be blessed, but he's going to be in hostility against all the world. And so we understand this, that even at that time, that, that there he was with Hagar. And then after Abraham, guess what? Abraham had this incredible grandson, and his name was Joseph. And Joseph was this incredible dreamer. And as we know about Joseph, Joseph rose to power. He received favor in the, in the midst of being a minority in an Egyptian culture. But notice this, that when he, was, when, when he ascended and then he was given this second position, Joseph married an Egyptian woman. And that Egyptian woman to, that he married to, they had two biracial children who were both African and in the nation of Israel. And those two children are called uh, Manasseh and Ephraim. They got incorporated into the nation of Israel. Stay with me here. Moses, Moses married two African women. The first woman was Zipporah. And Zipporah was an Ishmaelite from this line that we just talked about. The second woman was an Ethiopian that, we re- that, that renames nameless. But here it is, and we may have heard it, that once you go black, you don't go back. <laughs> he married two women, two women from Africa. And then you notice this, that when you start reading in Jeremiah, it was the Ethiopian who was able to raise up Jeremiah out of the pit when no one else wanted to help Jeremiah. You then go into Luke and you read about Jesus going to the cross, and we read about this incredible story about the man of Simon from Cyrene. Cyrene is in northern Africa. And so there was an African carrying the cross to Calvary. Then you go on and you read about there also in Acts chapter 8 or chapter 9, and we are told about Philip who met the Ethiopian eunuch. And it says that once the Ethiopian eunuch learned more about who Jesus was, he said, can I be baptized? And so he was baptized. He was converted. And he went back to Ethiopia. And there we understand, well, what happened? Well, we know this, that the oldest church in all of the world is the Ethiopian Coptic church. Amen. Then you read about Paul and Paul is there and there he is and he's talking, he's talking and he sends us all these incredible letters that we read in the New Testament. So when you read Romans and you read Corinthians and read Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians, you realize that those were not homogeneous churches. Those were all multi-ethnic churches. Glory to God. So what does that all mean for us? It means that we're all mutts. Amen. (laughs) We are all mutts. And and so we understand this, that that a pure God met pure sinners who shed his pure blood and gave us his pure grace and his pure love in order that we might be made holy in his sight. And so now we celebrate, and we're about to celebrate Holy Communion, whereby the blood makes us one and reminds us that we are all valuable in his sight and that we ought to value one another. May God bless us as he continues to make us his holy people. Amen. Wow, that was awesome. (laughs) Thank you for being here. Can we give him a hand again? That was just incredible. (laughs) Folks, we're only three weeks into this series, and I just feel that God is just going to continue to stir our hearts and bring us closer to him. And uh, as Pastor Chris shared, we are going to take a time now and uh, quiet our hearts and confess our sins to him. And let's do that now as a church. Let's just bow our heads, close our eyes.
And Holy Spirit, we know that you're working in our midst this morning. We know that you have brought Pastor Chris here to speak these words to us, to challenge us. And maybe some of the ways that we've allowed ourselves to be comfortable, some of the things that maybe have come out of our mouths or the thoughts that we've had about other human beings, people that were different than us, people that maybe made us uncomfortable, people that we judged not even knowing who they were. God, convict our hearts this morning. Break our hearts for what breaks yours. And in this moment, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, we confess our sins to you. Our God tells us that if we confess our sins, that he is faithful and just and that he forgives us of all of our sins, that he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And this morning, your God has heard your confession and because of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done for you on the cross, he forgives you of all of your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. You see, it was on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to the disciples and said, take ye, this is my body which is given for you. Do this remembering me. In the same way after supper, he gave the disciples a cup. He said, take drink. This cup is the new covenant of my blood, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this as often as you drink of it, remembering me. And so we come now to the table of the Lord. We come now and we receive the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness that is ours in Christ Jesus. Amen to that. Amen. Now may this true body and true blood of our Lord and Savior, may it strengthen you and preserve you and keep you in the one true faith until life everlasting. Receive the blessing of our Lord this morning. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May he look upon you with favor and give you his peace.